To start us off, a fine Resurrection Day hymn sung by the Coventry Chorale. It's Thine Be the Glory, Risen, Conquering Son. Continuing our series on John Wesley and Methodism, Melvin Bragg talked to three experts on the history of Methodism, Erin White, Stephen Plant and William Gibson. Today they look at Wesley's attitude to marriage and also the attitude of different denominations to religious enthusiasm. This is a good time, I think, to bring in Wesley's attitude to marriage. He wrote one of his many, many books, which mostly financed the movement, uh, talking in very high terms about marriage. He came close to it once or twice. It never quite happened um, for different reasons. Uh, And then he did get married. Can you take the story on from there, William Gibson? Yes. uh, Well, as we said, John Wesley had a relationship with Sophie Hopke in uh, Georgia. About 10 years after that, he had a friendship with a woman called Grace Murray, who uh, lived in Newcastle and who had uh, nursed him through an illness. 
um, and rather scandalously, he invited her to accompany him on a preaching tour of Ireland, uh, which certainly wasn't the done thing for a single woman. Um, and he, he seems to have regarded this as a form of engagement with her. But again, as with Sophie, he didn't act on it. Um, and his brother Charles and George Whitfield, who regarded Grace as rather an inappropriate spouse for John Leslie. Working class. Um, I think it was to do with class principally, yes. And they arranged for her to marry a, another Methodist preacher, John Bennett. Uh, but as you say, Wesley published in uh, Thoughts on Marriage that uh, Wes the, the marriage was an ideal state. Uh, it was his own that was, was problematic. In 1751, he married a woman called Mary Vizale. Uh He was aged 48 at that stage. She was a, a wealthy widow with four children. Uh, but it was a disastrous marriage, really. Uh, Mary was very frustrated by John's uh, itinerant preaching uh, and the fact that he was very rarely at home. Uh, and indeed, when he was at home, he was very busy with other things. And she also resented John's friendship friendships with other women uh, and in particular with a young woman called Sarah Ryan uh, with whom John Wesley had a long and frequent correspondence and as Mary Wesley's uh, anxieties about these friendships grew she questioned John uh, she uh, opened his letters to and from Sarah Ryan um, and the relationship gave way to violence on one occasion she was seen dragging John Wesley around the parlour by his hair after their marriage had fallen apart and they'd separated, he published the second edition of Thoughts on Marriage, in which he recommended celibacy and the single life as the ideal state and much preferable to marriage. So uh, he'd learned from his mistakes, I guess. Stephen Plant, what factions did Methodism start to split into and why? Well, as you said in your introduction, um, the Methodist movement released a lot of entrepreneurial energy uh, and that created tensions, a pattern of tension, really, between charismatic, free-thinking, entrepreneurial individuals on the one hand and the central control of the church on the other. And most of the breakaway movements of Methodism uh, fall into that kind of tension between the controlling centre and the charismatic individual who wants to break free. So there were a series of breakaway movements, the first of them very shortly after Wesley's death a few years, the Methodist New Connection. Um, the Primitives were the, by far and away the largest of the breakaway groups, and they were established in 1811 when Hugh Bourne, who had, was a wheelwright, self-taught, uh, taught himself languages uh, on the Staffordshire Cheshire border. Uh, so Hugh Bourne himself ran a kind of camp meeting which took about a day when people gave testimonies and prayed out loud and so on all out of doors and when he refused to stop doing that he was expelled by the wesleyans they were also known as ranters because of their sort of rather um, enthusiastic style of preaching they did very well in places like the durham minefields and east anglia and um by when they came to reunite with the Wesleyans in 1932, there was about half a million attending primitive Methodist churches Sunday by Sunday. It was a big, big movement. It's interesting that the, the, the Anglican church had put off by enthusiasm, by singing, by chanting, by movement, by, by showing your feelings in church. It, um, it, it seemed to be uh, set in a way that, that didn't want any of that emotion to enter into their services, their services, as it were, 
let it drain away. The, the word enthusiasm actually relates back to the 17th century when enthusiasts were the people who cut off Charles I's head. And I think the Church of England was very concerned about uh, the repetition of what happened in the 17th century, that you could allow ranters and Muggletonians and diggers and these fringe religious groups to take control and they would end up in overturning the state. So mm. religious enthusiasm was, was treated with considerable scepticism and... Uh, and concern, Aaron. Um, why do you think what kept it, what really kept these societies together? What did they offer that people couldn't get anywhere else? Well, it's probably a combination of support and structure, both of which were really important for the survival of the movement. Because, of course, there was the emphasis on individual conversion, but once people had been converted, there had to be some system to maintain them in that sense of faith. And the best way to do that, really, was to bring them together into fellowship meetings so they could sustain each other. So they were given a network of support and at the same time, of course, allowed to speak and to participate and to gain that sense, perhaps, of um, self-confidence in doing so. So they, it was very important that they had those connections through society, a sense as well then of being part of a much wider movement because they were told that they were part of um, a revival that was at work not just in the British Isles but in America and other parts of the world. Melvin Bragg and friends there. Charles Wesley was the early Methodist principal hymn writer and here are the St Michael singers with his great Easter hymn Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah.
Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 20. It's followed by the Phoenix Choir singing Springtime. A response to Psalm 20. All given for your growth and your delight. All flowing for you from his sanctuary. Even before you enter in, his light is blessing you. May mystery still draw you on, arouse your heart's desire, and may each glimpse become epiphany. May brief sparks blaze into a holy fire whose light and warmth illuminate your mind. And may some scent and sense of heaven inspire your thoughts and words. May everything remind you of your Lord, that you may put your trust entirely in his name. Not in the blind dependence of this world, whose weapons rust into the soul and kill it from within. But may you find in Christ riches and rest. This is a fairly new song, it comes from Hill Songs. It is I Cast My Mind to Calvary. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior. Tree. 
Barclay talks to disc jockey David Kidd Jensen about his career in pop music and also his lifelong love of classical music. In 1968, David Jensen left his native Canada to become the youngest member of Radio Luxembourg's lineup at the age of 18. 
In 2013, David was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he talks about the challenges of living with the disease and the optimism with which he has faced it, with the help of his wife Gudrun and also his Catholic faith. David, in 2013, you were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but you kept it secret for five years. Why did you decide to stay silent for so long? Originally, the first uh, neuro neurologist that I went to see, he was very keen for me to, not to tell anyone any time because you'll just end up with people wanting to talk to you all the time. And I thought, that sounds pretty good. I don't mind that. And so I changed neurologists, and, uh, and I've been happily talking away to people. And, uh, of course, I'm not a medical expert or anything, but a lot of people come to me with advice uh, or how would I do this, or how would I, how would I handle that? And I'm always flattered that they should counsel me. But uh, it's, uh, it's 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 great to meet people in the same situation as well, because one of the things that makes it tolerable is to keep reminding yourself that uh, you are not alone with Parkinson's. You are not alone. You're all you're only a phone call away from somebody, a trained uh, uh, doctor that can uh, that can allay your fears. Hopefully, no, not alone at all. I mean, people like Billy Connolly, Michael J. Fox, Neil Diamond—they've all talked about their experience of the disease, haven't they? No, that's right. And they've been great ambassadors. I mean, I was so chuffed with it when I first became an ambassador for Parkinson's because I used to think of Muhammad Ali being the most famous of the ambassadors. And I thought, we're in a great company here. Oh, well, you're one of 145,000 people living with Parkinson's in the UK. Um, is there any advice that uh, you would pass on to people that you found helpful in dealing with it? That's a little tricky in the sense that you will go through a multitude of, uh, of conditions. You'll be mad, you'll be sad, you'll be, you know, in every which way torn upside and down because it's something that you never expected would happen. Typically, with a lot of diseases, it's like that. But uh, I've always told people, make sure you keep in shape by going for walks. Even walks will do it. Um, but do them regularly, and uh, that should help any mobility problems you might have because uh, they could be on the way if you're not taking care of it. I've used uh, Tai Chi quite a lot over the last year, and uh, it's, it's very good for helping you and putting you in a kind of cool, mellow sort of state. You just want to keep that mobility going. And your, as you call her, queen of tough love, Gudrun, has helped you through all this. Yes, she has. She's been a great uh, comfort and gives me confidence and uh, looks after me. And, and especially in the, uh, well, all my friends who know I've got it, uh, they are always keeping an eye for me if we're out anywhere. <laughs> You've got to take the pill in 10 seconds because I keep forgetting to take the pills when I should. That's not a good thing. You should be taking the pills regularly. So, Well, you obviously are an optimistic person, uh, but it must be difficult sometimes to maintain that outlook uh, when you've been um, afflicted in this way. Um, did it take you by surprise or did it come up gradually? Yeah, I, it, it came up gradually, and uh, it, it came to a, a peak when I was at a Keep Fit Centre uh, run by the Royal Marines. All, uh, and uh, one of the Marines there looked at my gate one day when I came in and said, uh, have you had anyone look at that? Do you? And I said, no. He said, if I was you, maybe you should go and have a see what that is. It, it's the same situation when you go swimming, because I remember thinking, I, I used to love swimming. I can't, I can't swim with moving my arms and my legs at the same time, synchronize them. So there are things like that that uh, get in the way. But for the most part, there are lots of reasons to be cheerful and every day there seems to be uh, hope in a, in a new, in a new um, treatment which because Parkinson's is a and, and there's no cure for it we have to look at things that will dampen down the uh, least attractive of the uh, the you know, symptoms that people get with uh, with Parkinson's disease but uh, I haven't found that uh, working in radios has meant that I'm not uh, visibly uh, shaking all over but um, I sort of try and, uh, and hang out with people that have got energy that are that are like to go walking or r running or doing something to keep them self-active and, uh, and having the odd beer, Icelandic or not.
It's um, a classical uh, contemporary composer that we're going to turn to now. One who I think has really interested you, uh, Max Richter. I've gravitated now more to a music which is known by different names, but it's almost uh, genre-defining. People like Philip Glass and uh, Max Richter, who's uh, done a version of The Four Seasons. He's kind of remade it, remodeled it. So which of The Four Seasons would you like to hear? Well, let's go for summer, because it's such a bright, cheerful uh, time of year. So summer would be my choice for Max Richter. from Max Richter's album Vivaldi Recomposed Summer from the Four Seasons Andre Derrida was conducting the Konzerthaus Chamber Orchestra of Berlin with the violinist Daniel Hope We were talking earlier about how you're managing to live with Parkinson's and I think that one thing that gives you great strength is your faith because actually you converted to Catholicism not long before your diagnosis and what is it about the Catholic Church that drew you and what is it that helps you? I think the sense of community I think the, some of the, the ritual is, uh, can be a very spiritual uh, you know, thing to do to be part of and to take part in things like the Mass and uh, I just feel uh, a kinship well, we're going to end uh, with John Taverner's The Protecting Veil, which is from 1988. It's uh, very intense in a spiritual sense, this music, uh, very emotional. What effect does it have on you when you listen to it? I'm comforted by it. I just think it's a wonderful place to be, and it really does kind of envelop you. It's rather nice that we can say goodbye to you as we throw a protecting veil over you. So, David Jensen, thank you very much. It's been a, a privilege, and thank you very much for having me.
Here's a song now for Easter Sunday again. Christine Getty with See What a Morning Gloriously Bright with the Dawning of Hope in Jerusalem. Jareth Nixon is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Jareth recommends a form of meditation where we imagine ourselves to be in a scene from the Bible. 
Today, Cherith imagines herself to be Jesus' mother's sister, waiting beside the cross. You might find helpful the form of gospel contemplation that St. Ignatius Loyola describes in his spiritual exercises. It's particularly valuable in helping to bring to vivid light passages in the Gospels, like the descriptions of Christ's death on the cross, with which we are so familiar that there is a danger of us forgetting their immense power. The steps are as follows. First, select a passage from the Gospels. Commit the exercise to God, asking for his guidance. Read the Gospel passage twice so that it becomes familiar. Close your eyes and recreate the scene in your imagination. Imagine you are one of the characters in the story or an observer present at the scene. Are you one of the soldiers flogging Christ? Are you Simon of Cyrene, compelled to carry his cross? Are you one of the criminals hung beside him? Are you the centurion who said, when Christ died, surely this was a righteous man? What are you doing there in the scene? What can you see, hear, feel, touch, smell? What are the thoughts going through your mind? What is your attitude to Jesus and what he's doing? Ask God to show you the lessons he wishes you to learn from the exercise. Last year, I focused on just one phrase from this passage in John 19, verses 25 to 27. And I wrote down what came into my mind. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his own home. The phrase that stuck in my mind was his mother's sister. Already it's hot. Here outside the palace there's no shelter from the pitiless sun. My feet ache. I seem to have been standing here for hours. The heavy air is still tainted with the lingering smells of the Passover feast. Fat, roast lamb and bitter herbs dished up last night in countless homes across the city. I try to think of joyful Passovers long ago when Joseph and Ezra were still alive and the children were small. But my mind scurries like a terrified mouse. I can't stop myself thinking of him. He was such a kind boy, my sister's son. So patient and loving with his younger brothers and sisters and with my two never too busy to play with them or to tell them stories. I admit, I used to stop whatever I was doing and listen in. Such a way with words he had. And when he was older and working with Joseph in the carpenter's shop, he'd fashion little toys for the children from offcuts of wood, lambs, sparrows, donkeys, as lifelike as you please. He was a real craftsman with wood. 
The farmers always wanted to buy their auction yokes from him because they were so smooth and easy for the beast to bear. He was a good boy too. When the family got together on a feast day and shared all the do-you-remembers, we used to tell how Simeon had got caught stealing figs from old Josiah and how Sarah had taken her grandmother's single silver bangle to show off to her friends and dented it. But the only story we could ever tell about him was the day we lost him in Jerusalem and found him in the temple talking to the elders as if he was one of them. Well, he's lost in Jerusalem now, all right. Look at his mother standing there rigid and upright in this relentless heat, holding herself together by sheer force of will, waiting, as we all are, for them to bring him out. She's not moved or spoken since we heard that great cry go up from inside the gates. Crucify him! Crucify him! We all suspected they wanted him dead, but not like this. Not this terrible death the Romans use for their slaves. I can't believe it. That one of our own family should come to this. Least of all him. What has he ever done to them? Nothing but good. Look at all those he's healed. The lame walking, the blind seeing, demons cast out, even the dead raised to life. I've seen it all with my own eyes. Of course, it was hard to believe at first, in spite of what Mary had said about the angel. I mean, he was our own Jesus, wasn't he? Hard to believe that one of your own is the Christ. But I did come to believe it in the end. Seeing his power and hearing what he said about his father's kingdom of love and mercy. So I and some of the other women from Galilee started to travel around with him and his followers, looking after them. I mean, what man can keep his own clothes clean and make sure he eats nourishing food? But now, where are all our hopes and visions now? If he's the Christ, how can it end like this? Surely, oh, oh. The gates are opening, and the soldiers are dragging them out. Three of them, I think. Oh, look, is that him? It can't be. Look at his face. What have they done to him? What's that thing on his head? Look at the blood all over his robe, the seamless one I wove for him all those months ago. Mary, sister, come away. How can we bear to see? She won't, of course. She grips my hand so tightly I think the bones will crack. She begins to walk behind the escorting soldiers, one determined step after the other. She'll be there to the end, I know, making sure that in all that hostility he can see one face full of love for him. She'll hold him with her eyes and try to pour her strength into him. And I, I'll go with her, of course. She's my sister. And he... He is the boy I've loved for 30 odd years and the man I've come to worship. And the wicked fools are killing him. Kenneth Nixon, imagining herself as Jesus' auntie, Mary's sister, they were there when they crucified the Lord. This is Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection with the St Michael singers now and Low in the Grave He Lay. <laughs> 